Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today is Becca Lewis, an academic and PhD candidate at Stanford University who studies the far right and the way that it uses media to propagate its message. Thanks for joining us, Becca. Thanks so much for having me. I guess just to begin with, how did you start looking into this stuff? What inspired you to follow this track of academic research? (laughs) I know it's a valid question to ask anyone who finds themselves in these... uh, strange and awful world. I actually kind of stumbled into it by accident. I have always been interested in new media and went to grad school to get my master's in social science focused on the internet and looked at kind of more mainstream political campaigns and all of these things. And then directly after I I finished my master's program, I joined a think tank called Data and Society. And they were starting to launch a project looking at the far right in the lead up to the 2016 US presidential election. And the way that essentially that this hodgepodge of like conspiracy theorists and the alt-right and men's rights advocates and all these different people, the way they were all essentially manipulating the mainstream media to, to spread their messaging. And so I applied for that job and started launching into that research once I started there and then kind of got sucked in and found myself uh, still doing it several years later. <laughs> it sounds like you fell down the YouTube rabbit hole, but the other way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's strange because I think, you know, the people that end up in these worlds, as I'm sure you both have found, it's like you develop a strange obsession with it because it's kind of awful to know that that there are these people out there, that there are these movements and you kind of, it, it ends up consuming a lot of your thoughts and energy. I think when I first noticed you was you, you wrote a report for Data and Society in late 2018 and uh, it involved some something of a Sisyphean task. Uh, could you... <laughs> Tell us what you did for that report and what you found. Sure, yes. So that was a report that was looking specifically at right-wing and far-right YouTube creators and the way that YouTube as a platform facilitated radicalization. And so I identified a group of about 65 different YouTube channels who were loosely connected. And basically, I was looking at who was collaborating with each other in various videos and found basically that these channels that were all collaborating with each other, they did come from like genuinely a range of different ideological backgrounds and kind of, you know, video styles and all of that. So you had libertarians, you had 
kind of mainstream conservatives. You had overt white nationalists. You had conspiracy theorists, all of these different things. But they were united by, first of all, a hatred of the mainstream media and kind of a wish to replace the mainstream media for their viewers. And second, a hatred of the figure known as the social justice warrior and just really hated anyone kind of advocating for progressive policies or ideas, particularly related to like feminism or, you know, Islam or trans issues are some of the big ones. So basically, I found that they they had formed this entirely, completely, fully functioning media ecosystem. And it's where a lot of young people were gravitating. And it was really easy to to get really quickly radicalized on there. Was there a typical audience member for this sort of material? It's a great question and one that's really tough because from the outside, we don't have a ton of data to look at the the demographics of, of who's looking, but we can kind of piece it together from the way that people define themselves or refer to themselves in the comments or on various like subreddits devoted to these channels. And every so often the channels themselves also talk about the demographic breakdown of their audience because they get a little bit more data around that. And basically it skews incredibly heavily towards male viewers of the of the channels who have shared their content. It tends to be somewhere around 90% male viewers. And then it's young viewers, which makes sense because people over a certain age are not getting their news or their entertainment content from YouTube in the same way that younger generations are. When we have these conversations about YouTube and radicalization pathways and things like that, the YouTube recommendation algorithm is often pointed to as a a major contributor. Uh, What's your take on the YouTube recommendation algorithm? I'm really glad you asked because (laughs) I I have taken up this cause uh, often kind of shouting into the wind, but I, I actually try to avoid talking about the algorithm too much. And that's for a few reasons. I do think that the algorithm is a a huge and very important part of the equation. But I think it's really easy to pin everything on the algorithm and treat it as if that is the source of all of the problems when in fact, there's actually like a mix of a bunch of different things happening. Uh, And so what I end up focusing on more in my research is a couple of different phenomena that are also going on. One of them is micro-celebrity, as we call it in academia, but essentially just internet celebrity and the parasocial relationships that get developed between these YouTube creators and their audiences. They'll stream or, or post videos that last for hours at a time and may be broadcasting just from their bedrooms. It feels like they're giving this really intimate glimpse into their lives. And the audience often feels, you know, starts to feel like they really know these creators and trust them. So that's one big element. And then the other is social networking. And that you kind of see that with the collaborations that happen between these influencers. You know, it's a well-known strategy for someone trying to build up a YouTube channel that if you can get a guest spot being interviewed on a channel that's bigger than yours, that's a really great way to get new viewers because you're being exposed to a new audience. And if on the flip side, you host a channel where it's kind of a talk show format, you need to fill guest spots. And so you have these symbiotic relationships crop up where someone who is hosting a talk show format or, you know, just wants to have guests on their channel will purposefully have someone kind of provocative or known to be controversial on their channel because they know that 
that will kind of produce buzz. And on the flip side, for someone who is a little bit more extreme or controversial, they get access to a new audience if they go on on another channel. So you have that social networking taking place in a way that in some cases you don't even need the algorithm to to do its work. And the the algorithm, when it does kind of nudge people further and further to the right, it's interacting with the, the other forces that I mentioned. All of them kind of impact each other. And so you'll have certain celebrities specifically trying to manipulate the title of their video to show up highly in the recommendation algorithm. And you may have a parasocial relationship as a viewer with one of the celebrities and then may find through the algorithm a video of them with someone else that you get introduced to and so on. So all of these things kind of work together. It's been over two years since the report Alternative Influence was published. There's been a few changes in the social media landscape since. What's been the fate of the 60 plus creators that you examined back then? You know, it's really mixed. It, it is a little bit. So I made a network graph of all of these channels as part of the research. And looking back at that graph now, it is kind of look, like looking at a crystallized moment in time. It you know, there are certain people that were hugely influential at the time that I looked at that, that now have completely fallen off the radar. And there are other channels that have grown really uh, significantly since I published that. But the fates of individual creators has been really mixed. Some of them kind of the worst offenders in terms of open racism or harassment have been kicked off the platform, often in a few cases as recently as this fall. So, you know, sometimes it has been a couple of years since I've published the research. Some of them have... Uh, I should say some of those have traveled to other streaming websites like DLive is one of the more popular alternatives. And then there are people who have just maybe fallen out of the limelight a little bit. The Canadian professor Jordan Peterson was someone in that network graph and he like had a bunch of health problems and so stopped making content. But some of them actually have continued to grow. And so one pretty typical ex- example of a, a channel that has continued to grow over time is um, the YouTube creator Tim Pool, who was a, a pretty significant figure at the time that I was writing. He interviewed a lot of far-right people, including people with ties to the Christchurch shooter. And since the time of my research, his channel has continued to to grow and grow and grow. And he has a really significant following on YouTube right now, even though his name is not well known, you know, it's not a household name outside of those worlds. He has a, a really significant impact in, you know, online media. Uh, late last year, we did see another report released, the New Zealand Royal Commission's report into the March 15 terror attack, uh, amongst other things that pointed to a role that Facebook and YouTube had played in the radicalization of the shooter. Were you surprised by those findings? Sadly, I wasn't. It, it was something that, you know, researchers in this area had pretty much suspected. I mean, there, there are several ways for someone to get radicalized, but YouTube and Facebook are really, really common ways for that to happen. I think there's often this misconception that far-right operations online happen only in kind of the deep, darkest corners of the internet. And actually, just as often, they take place on these mainstream social media networks because that's where there's 
fertile ground for new recruits, right? YouTube is above all for them, a place to propagandize and recruit new people. And so if you're already on one of the kind of far right forums, you're preaching to the choir. And YouTube serves a really useful purpose for these people who want to grow their movement. So unfortunately, it, it made a lot of sense. Also, in terms of some of the conspiracy theories that he specifically wrote about in his manifesto, those were very popular on YouTube. So yeah, overall, it wasn't a surprise, but I will say that it was, it was still quite depressing to read the, the confirmation because he had donated money to some of the very same creators that I had published about in uh, September of 2018. So he had donated to, uh, you know, the, the alt-right figurehead, uh, Richard Spencer, to the far-right Canadian news outlet, Rebel News, that a bunch of YouTube creators got their start through that. Stefan Molyneux, who is also a Canadian, who is kind of infamous as a, a vector point for radicalization. And then Martin Sellner, who's a, an Austrian neo-Nazi who uh, had the most contact with the Christchurch shooter ahead of time. But So we don't have all of the data about everything he was watching, but the fact that he donated to at least four of these YouTubers suggested that you know he was deeply aware of and involved in, in that media ecosystem. And it's, it's just really awful because people have been talking about this for a while now, and YouTube has done very, very little to address it. Amongst those various examples of uh, people that seemed influenced the shooter, have you seen post this report any reflection by those people about their role in that attack? Uh, no. <laughs> I wouldn't expect them to, but, you know, I guess the closest is Lauren Southern is a YouTuber who got her start at Rebel News, which was one of the places he, he donated to. And I believe she responded to some accusations on Twitter afterwards, you know, saying that she never promotes violence and basically distancing herself from this, from the Christchurch shooter without taking any responsibility. And there's a lot of equivocation that happens in those moments. So for example, there was uh, another shooting that happened in the United States, one of many, and this shooter had followed some left-wing accounts on Twitter and elsewhere, but there was no indication that his attack was politically motivated. Nonetheless, a lot of far-right creators use that as kind of a equivocation point to say, you know, well, uh, if you're going to try to hold us accountable, why don't you hold these left-wing creators accountable, uh, even though it's a very different situation? But, but the short answer is no, there was no real reflection or, claim, you know, taking responsibility after that came out. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Becca Lewis about the far right and social media. There's no reference, I think, to QAnon in the report. What's been the influence of Q on this community in particular and on the far right in its online presence in general? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that actually when I was doing the bulk of my research that went into that YouTube report, QAnon was still kind of in its very, very early stages. It hadn't reached the mainstream success that it has now. And so the, the short answer is that it actually wasn't much of a presence in the worlds that I was looking at. Now I think that partially that has changed, but also 
partially some of the period of time that I was looking at was 2017 and 2018. And at that point, the influencers who I was looking at were the most popular influencers related to right-wing and far-right content online. Now, some of them still are, but as I said, some of them, you know, have kind of faded in popularity. And now there's kind of a new surge of explicitly QAnon people. And so some of it is, you know, some creators have leaned into it a little bit, but also like a whole new generation of creators has cropped up around it. And so it really is, you know, kind of a constantly evolving system that's very difficult to keep up with. There's been uh, a few things happening in uh, Washington of late, Becca. <laughs> yes, and, there has, and there's been a discussion about how the events that took place were perhaps could have been anticipated if mm-hmm. uh, more attention had been paid to the uh, thousands of posts declaring that there'd be uh, an uprising on the occasion. What's been the role of online media in terms of promoting retaking the capital? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I I think the main role that kind of the entire right wing and and far right media ecosystem has played in the past couple of months has been just continuing to push the conspiracy theory that the election was stolen from Donald Trump and that the results of the election were not legitimate. That has been a constant refrain on YouTube, on Twitter, on cable news. Um, So there's Fox News, which some of the the primetime hosts have dabbled in that, but there's also other cable news channels such as Newsmax and One American News that are are kind of even more gung ho than Fox at this point. And all of them, you know, without fail, are promoting this idea. Have been constantly promoting the idea that Donald Trump won in a landslide. There was widespread voter fraud, and that the election was stolen. And so, I think that that helped foment, you know, the general rage that that ended up manifesting, you know, earlier this week at the Capitol. But it wasn't, you know, the the biggest players weren't explicitly urging a storming of the Capitol. There was a broader march happening that a lot of them were promoting and, and talking about. So that was kind of the most widespread. But there were some smaller creators who were were starting to say some very particularly troubling and, and violent things in the lead up. So it was clear that even in kind of the open media spaces, there were signs that there would be something brewing at the very least. In the wake of the storming of the Capitol, we've seen the various social media platforms taking action against Donald Trump. He's been banned from Twitter, Facebook, uh, Twitch, probably others as well. I guess, uh, what what do you make of all of that? Is is it too little too late or are we going down a slippery slope by putting uh, all of the power into the hands of the big tech companies to police this stuff? Uh, I I think it's a bit of both. I I do think it's too little too late in the sense that, you know, (laughs) there's there's two weeks left to to Donald Trump's presidency. And I think a lot of people are... uh, gaining courage now that it's clear that he's uh, close to to being out. I also think, you know, the the history of Silicon Valley is so interesting and the the ideals and the ideologies that got got baked into platforms like Twitter. It's a, a deeply libertarian culture actually. Uh, as much as right-wing creators like to say that, you know, the the big tech platforms are all 
lib- you know, filled with liberals who are trying to silence conservatives. Actually, the, the culture of Silicon Valley historically has been incredibly libertarian. And the idea is that, you know, no one government, platform, anyone should be interfering in anyone's ability to speak. That's been the guiding principle. And you think of even design decisions that we take, you know, instantly for granted now have certain assumptions and, and ideological choices baked into them. So just to give an example, the fact that content moderation in general is reactive on these platforms instead of posting, having someone review the post and then having it go out to the public. That's a choice that they made, right? And, you know, you could say, well, it's kind of a choice they had to make because no one would be able to, uh, you know, there's not enough people that they could hire to review all of these posts, which is fair, but that also speaks to kind of their drive for growth and to get absolutely as big as possible with as little oversight as possible. So there's all these like millions, you know, or, or at least, you know, thousands of decisions that are baked into every single platform. And actually the, the logic kind of underpinning these platforms is one that assumes that everyone should be able to, to speak as much as possible. And that's informed their approach to Donald Trump. And, you know, it is, I think, of note that that libertarian ideal is also like directly complementary to their business interests, right? Because the more people posting is the more that, you know, can be advertised on and more revenue for them. So, Anyways, this is all a way of saying that, you know, uh, the the very way that these companies run kind of operates on a logic that has been really antithetical to actually kind of trying to, you know, stop harassment, stop propaganda, stop fake news, and, you know, stop Donald Trump from promoting harm. And clearly, they have really struggled to know what to do with it. So in all of those senses, I think it's too little too late. On the other hand, I think that like, for exactly all of the same reasons that I've been talking about that drive for scale, the way that they've made these decisions as a result of their drive for scale means that they are incredibly popular. And I think they do have much po- too much power uh, over over public discourse at this point. I, I don't have a problem so much with them. Well, I should rephrase. I don't have any problem with them kicking Trump off. I don't think that's any kind of threat to freedom of speech. I think that he was an incredible an incredibly harmful force on that platform. And it's not losing anything to have him off. But I do think that it's a problem that all of our public discourse at this point takes place on these, you know, major corporation, you know, spaces run by these major corporations that essentially are trying to monetize everything that we post. And that's not going to be a space that actually facilitates like useful political discussion, right? That facilitates advertisable content. Those are not always, uh, you know, the one and the same. In the course of the last few years, we've also seen, partly in response to, uh, I guess, censorship and repression on uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter, the development of uh, alt-tech platforms, uh, one of which that's um, come to prominence, prominence recently is Parler. And Parler itself has apparently been experiencing some problems in terms of technical support. So my question is, do you think that these alternative platforms have a future? Uh, do you think they're going to be able to overcome the kinds of technical difficulties that are being presented to them uh, in the current moment? 
Well, it's so interesting, actually. I don't know if either of you saw this, but earlier today, as of the day of recording, the uh, Amazon Web Services kicked Parler off. So now, basically, they are really going to struggle to to get back uh, online and it will be really interesting to see whether they're able to. But if they do, I think they'll be at a, a severe disadvantage, both in terms of kind of the time lost. This is really the time where they would be trying to gain as many users as possible, and they can't do that when they're offline. And also, I think they really are going to struggle technically to have the infrastructure they need without something like Amazon Web Services. So, you know, alt tech has been a really interesting development. It seems to be a a fairly consistent trend, but the actual websites themselves often get quite popular quite quickly and then eventually fail. So Gab, for example, was kind of the big alt tech platform for a long time. Um, now it's a ghost town. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if Parler ends up eventually, um, you know, coming to a similar fate, even if, you know, if they do end up getting back online. It's really difficult, it turns out, to run a popular social media platform. And, you know, the Twitters and Facebooks and YouTubes of the world have, you know, a, a huge amount of, a huge number of employees huge amounts of money, huge amounts of infrastructure, all of these things that uh, the alt tech platforms really struggle with. But on top of that, they always end up facing the challenge that I kind of mentioned earlier, which is that a lot of conservatives end up getting bored on these platforms because there's no libs to, to troll. They, or, or people to kind of recruit. So they actually get the most value out of larger social media platforms because they can either, you know, try to dunk on their political adversaries or harass people they don't like or try to propagandize to new people. And when it's all preaching to the choir on a on an app like Parlor, you just don't have those opportunities. Well, Becca, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your stuff, you're on Twitter at Becca L E W and you're also on Patreon. That's right. Patreon.com slash Becca Lou. Thanks so much for joining us. We will have a few more questions on the podcast version of the show, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next week. Becky, so you're talking about Parler and AWS. Something I thought was interesting in AWS's letter to Parler was that their proposal of volunteer content moderation was insufficient for AWS. But it does seem like all of these platforms rely on their users volunteering to police behavior, especially content which tries to skirt uh, algorithmic moderation. Looking on YouTube, for example, the, you know, the hour-long live streams sometimes that are full of coded references to violence that a, an algorithm can never pick up, and it's relying on you know ordinary people to watch this content and report it and then hope that someone in Manila mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, understands the context. How, how is uh, what Parler was proposing any different to what the, the major networks do? Uh, I have to admit, I didn't see what they were proposing. Uh, is that, when did that come out? I wasn't following super closely. I, th- I think that was just the, yeah, AWS said, uh, you'll need to moderate your content and that they'd suggested that they were going to do volunteer content moderation, but still oh, nothing I like see. anyone else. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what the, what the major 
social media networks end up relying on is a mixture of a bunch of different content moderation approaches. So, you know, using YouTube as an example, they first and foremost use uh, algorithm, like you mentioned, and they have a couple of algorithms. One is, you know, for taking down content. Another is for demonetizing content so that content can remain up, but it won't have advertisements placed on it and, you know, the creator won't be able to make money. The problem with those algorithms is that they're incredibly blunt tools and, you know, often end up leaving things up. Like you mentioned, you know, anytime someone is able to have kind of a sophisticated dog whistle or, you know, use slightly coded language, then frequently the the algorithms will just miss it. And on the flip side, they'll often catch a bunch of stuff in their nets that isn't far right content or doesn't violate these terms. So Actually, it creates uh, among a lot of creators who are not far right and are simply trying to make a living on YouTube. It creates a real culture of fear that the way that these people make a living, they think is like deeply unstable and could the rug could be pulled out from under them at any point. Then there's also the aspect where, you know, someone can flag a, a video and then it will get brought to a, a content moderator that often works either directly for YouTube or for a firm that's contracted by YouTube. So for the the problems with that, when someone, you know, it, it assumes that there are going to be people watching this content who oppose it. And the people that are drawn to the far right content are mostly people who are already bought into the far right way of thinking or are getting drawn into it. And so there's a flaw in kind of the logic of how that works in the first place, then the when it gets brought to content moderation worker, there's a bunch of other potential challenges there as well. Like you mentioned, often it's someone that's not in the same country as where the post came from. And so there could be a lot of cultural context or slang that they just don't have knowledge of. Also, they are basically incentivized as workers to make uh, decisions that are as quick as possible. So they really are under pressure to like make these snap judgments. They're not supposed to sit around kind of weighing the options back and forth, thinking through the context. There is so much content to get through. They are just supposed to go, you know, bam, bam, bam. They also, there's been quite a bit of uh, academic research and investigative reporting now that has shown that for content moderators, it's deeply traumatic work. And often they, you know, don't have kind of full-time employment with benefits. They're basically like a really precarious workforce. So there's a lot of labor concerns there. And, you know, when people are so traumatized and run down from their work, that also presumably affects kind of how effective their moderation decisions are going to be. So that comes with like uh, its own problems as well. Then there is the the volunteer <laughs> route. And you can see, you know, an example of that is on Reddit, you know, each subreddit has their own moderators that generally are just not paid. They're, they're doing it for, for the love of the community. And that actually can, under the right circumstances, work quite well. But the reason that it works well for Reddit, for example, is because each subreddit is quite distinct and can have its own culture, its own norms that are created and its own rules that are created. On a platform like Twitter, the volunteer system wouldn't work because it is supposed to be kind of the same rules applied to everyone across, you know, any given country. And there's so much room, for example, for foul play or trolling 
or, you know, targeted harassment through kind of these volunteer mechanisms. There's no oversight around it. And that I think is some of the issue with, uh, you know, uh, a volunteer force on part. In terms of the financing of especially right-wing platforms, it seems to be the case with whether it's Breitbart or Rebel Media or Parler, there's big money backing some of these platforms. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of political economy of, uh, I guess, alt-tech and the right-wing's use of uh, online networks? Yeah, uh, a lot of that is similar in some ways to the the right-wing media ecosystem more broadly. It is, for the most part, it's really good business, uh, you know, depressingly. But something like Fox News, for example, I think kind of led the way in, in showing how if you're able to use a tabloid style to deliver this hyper-partisan news, that people will gravitate to it and have a great deal of allegiance for it. And, and that has been, you know, incredibly financially successful. Now you have also a lot of these online platforms that in some cases there are organizations that, you know, run. So Rebel News is an example of a outlet that's digital and that makes money from Fox News type content or content that's even more extreme than Fox News. And then you also have billionaire or, or hyper wealthy donors who are either looking to make an investment or are simply looking to influence the political discourse happening. And so sometimes they're not even looking for a return on their investment or a financial return on their investment. And so there are actually outlets that are nonprofits and that are incredibly popular, but they're specifically there like only to propagandize. I think that the alt tech piece is a little bit of both. I think that theoretically there is an idea that they could be profitable for people. That's with, with every social media platform, you know, financial success is a, a factor. I also think that from a marketing perspective, there's a lot of information to be gleaned about people using a web, a, a platform like Parler, particularly because Parler required actually quite a, a deal of information from its users. And, and that is information that can be sold to advertisers, sold to marketers, sold to political campaigns, any number of things. And then there's also the fact that, you know, if you're running these platforms and you have kind of a captive conservative group of people using it, that that gives you the ability to shape the way that they think about certain issues, shape the way the conversation is going. So there's a lot of potential advantages for kind of hyper wealthy, far right proponents like the the Mercer family is kind of the, the biggest well known one. In terms of reporting on right wing content on YouTube or right wing uh, creators, whether on YouTube or elsewhere, what do you think have been the kind of failings of, um, I guess, more mainstream reportage in this regard? And what would you consider to be the chief concerns that should be addressed by someone who's wanting to report on these sorts of uh, topics? Yeah, particularly throughout 2015 and 2016 in the United States, the mainstream media often ended up kind of accidentally acting as mouthpieces for far-right figureheads. And the far-right celebrities and figureheads were very, very astute and 
understood media dynamics quite well and still do. And so anytime a reporter tried to get a comment from someone like Richard Spencer, for example, he would jump at the chance and knew how to use sound bites to get across a point that could help propagandize. And even if there's, you know, a hundred thousand people reading the article and only one of them uh, has their mind kind of inched a little bit closer to him, that's still a win. And so the mainstream media has ended up being a really important kind of publicity apparatus for the far right. You'll see a lot of the, the rallies that have happened, you know, they specifically will dress up in kind of these wacky costumes. That's what happened at the Capitol too, although it's unclear kind of how thought out that was ahead of time uh, in terms of, you know, trying to get media coverage. But a lot of times they they know how to kind of be shocking and engaging enough to get that mainstream coverage. And so uh, actually a colleague of mine or, or a former colleague of mine, Whitney Phillips, who also researches in this space, she's done really incredible work trying to to develop what might be kind of a an ethics of covering the far right in journalism and you know so many people kind of will justify giving like a a nice juicy interview to so you know to a nazi by saying oh sunlight is the best disinfectant and actually what whitney argues is that that's like a really flawed way of thinking about it and instead she suggests a different metaphor which is that these interviews and this media coverage can end up being the the oxygen that fuels the fire of the far right if you give them kind of this platform and don't challenge them in any meaningful way that isn't just kind of there's this assumption that oh if their views make it to the public people will see how awful it is and reject it well that's not always how it works they're very strategic at their messaging so what she she developed a whole checklist of recommendations for reporters but a lot of times i think what it comes down to is just uh, talking to vulnerable communities first and actually trying to hear their story and grounding the reporting in that i will say that, you know, as an academic researcher, I don't do kind of, you know, journalistic interviews so much. But what I have ended up developing is is a recognition that I think you really have to approach this research from an explicitly anti-fascist standpoint, because otherwise, it's just too easy for it to become exoticized, just a, oh, look at this, isn't this interesting? No, it's uh, it's not interesting for its own sake. It's important because they pose all of these harms to, to other people. And so to me, that's kind of where I've landed on it, that you have to approach these things from an explicitly anti-fascist standpoint for the work to be any good. Well, if we've only learnt one thing from the Trump presidency, it's that it can't just be sunlight. You need to drink bleach as well to be the best disinfectant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pekka, speaking of uh, anti-fascists, they're apparently also active online and employing various tactics to, uh, I guess, address these alt-right personages and so on. Some of those have been described as being, or those tactics as, as being intent on uh, deplatforming and sometimes doxing various far-right activists. What do you make of those sorts of online strategies, both uh, ethically and politically? Yeah, I tend not to, to wade into the debates about the ethics of doxing, but I will say that for the most part, I, I find the work that's being done to be highly effective. Well, yeah, I guess, <laughs> I guess 
I know that it can be done kind of shoddily and without care, but I think that if there's care to how it's being done, to who the target is, and to what kind of the the intended impact is, that it can be an incredibly valuable tool for kind of, you know, resisting fascism and and the power of fascists. And we see that right now with all of the follow-up to, you know, the the mob storming the Capitol, that uh, you know, one of the few things that people have it in their power to do is to identify the people who showed up in the photos and and on the streams. And to me, I think that's incredibly valuable and it's incredibly important because if they aren't identified, that's potential for continued action and, and violence against vulnerable groups and people who clearly are often times the people that are being identified are the ones that are explicitly have Nazi tattoos or have wearing Nazi clothes and all of these things. And in this case, of course, they were attacking, you know, violently attacking a, a federal building. So, you know, I, th- I think that it it's difficult in this media environment and attention economy to know how to fight against some of these forces that seem so pervasive. And I think that these attempts to kind of identify the the Nazis who are often breaking the law is one way of doing that without kind of getting into the weeds of the attention economy yourself, because that can be a, a, a tough battle to fight. Trump is presumably leaving office quite soon. Uh, but this movement that has been created in the wake of his presidency isn't going to disappear. And there's been some speculation that as the uh, reality of his being out of office hits home, there may be a tendency within the Trumpist movement to resort to um, not only tactics that we saw at the Capitol, but uh, even more extreme forms of aggression. What's your reading of the situation and what do you think we can reasonably expect uh, in the wake of his departure? Oh, it's such a good question. And I am very much not good at, uh, at predictions. So I don't know, you know, exactly what will happen in the coming days and weeks. But I will say that I absolutely agree that I think that this, this movement is here. It's not going to go away. You know, President-elect Joe Biden has been talking about trying to heal the divide in our country. That is a, a noble intention. There's no way that it's going to, to happen with the, the way that the far right and the right wing kind of currently exists right now, the, the MAGA devotion. So I think that, you know, there's a chance that violence will escalate. There's a chance it'll die down in the short term. Either way, it's the movement will stick around. And what I actually, you know, think about the most is kind of the, the scary potential for someone who's a more effective authoritarian than Trump to, to kind of sweep in and, and fill whatever vacuum gets left, uh, by Trump after, you know, if, if he ends up not being in the public light or whenever he kind of ends up dying down the line, I think there's a, a real danger of someone being able to take what Trump started and, and perfect it. Well, that's a cheery night to end on. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> fun, fun chit chat. <laughs> I will just note uh, before we go that uh, since we started this interview, Steve Bannon's been kicked off YouTube as well. Wow. So, Wait, off, of, uh, <laughs> off of YouTube or Twitter? Uh, off of YouTube, his uh, wow. war room 
podcast. Oh so I can God. only imagine between now and Thursday when this goes to air how much is going to affect I happen. know this is all going to seem like old news. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, by then it, we, America will be communist China. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's what all of the right wing outlets are saying now that it's uh, either the two lines are either it's 1984 or it's communist China. Oh, well, congratulations, comrade Becker. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> subjected people seeking asylum to torturous conditions. The Minister for Home Affairs was supposed to care for them, but instead they suffered enormous physical and psychological harm. Now, those refugees are fighting for accountability and justice. On their behalf, the National Justice Project is taking legal action against the government for negligence and for breaching their duty of care. 
To support 50 asylum seekers in their fight for justice against the Minister for Home Affairs, please donate at justice.org.au. The National Justice Project is a 3CR supporter. Thank you.